neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast, and we are so glad you're here. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person, or you can catch our gatherings after the fact on our YouTube channel. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Now, I know what you're thinking. How cool is that? Right? So, God works in wondrous ways. Um, I was a preacher's kid growing up. We moved a lot. Moved between my first, first and second grade year in school. Moved between my fourth and fifth grade year in school. Moved between my tenth and eleventh or ninth and tenth grade year in school. I had a bit of a rocky time. Each transition was a little different. The older I got, the harder the transitions were. It was amazing, though, when we went from when I when we moved to a little place in North Carolina called Robbinsville. Um, God kind of brought me to a place where I would have some community that I didn't realize was going to happen. Um, I started in band in the fifth grade. Uh, Not a band, the band. (laughs) There's a difference, I understand. Uh, In the fifth grade, about the age Isaac is, I started playing the trumpet. uh, And I moved from trumpet to, to tuba by the time I was in the seventh grade. It was an interesting time in my life because it became kind of my community, it became who I was, it kind of became my identity that lasted for about eight years. Uh, I did it all the way until I was a senior in high school. We were in a really small school in Robinsville. There was about 40 of us in the band total. That was from seventh grade to seniors in high school. There was about 40 of us in the senior band. We were a little, nice little tight-knit group. When I moved from sixth grade to seventh grade, uh, the tuba, we only had one tuba player in the school, and he graduated. And so as we were... I was making that transition. I went to our band director. I said, who's going to play the tuba? And she was like, well, you? And I was like, "Mm." I got stuck with it, right? Something else happened that that time, though. Our band director left, and a new guy came in. Our new band director came in, and he was a tuba player. Just graduated with his master's from University of Illinois. Was a really, uh, really good guy. Had a really great skill level. And I was the only tuba player around, and so I was the, the beneficiary of all of his knowledge and of all of his skill and of all of his teaching. Uh, helped me become a pretty good tuba player. My seventh grade year, I made mid-state band, and I did that every the rest of my time that I was until I graduated. Um, I, I went from being somebody who'd never touched it to somebody who was was pretty proficient at it. By the time I was in tenth grade, I made all-state band. I was in the top. I know this doesn't make, make a difference to any of y'all. We'll get somewhere with this. Just, just track with me, all right? By the time I was in 10th grade, I was in the top 16 tuba players in the state of North Carolina. That song that you just heard played that I had Campbell kind of capture the audio for was uh, a song that I played as a solo at a solo and ensemble competition when I was in 10th grade. Just me by myself in front of a, a large group of people and, and uh, some judges. It was a really good time in my life, and I progressed really fast, and I became really proficient at what I did, and I played several different instruments. And then between my 10th and, or between my 10th and 11th grade year, we moved to Cookville, just down the road, about an hour down the road. And we came, went from a band that was about 40 to a band that was about 150, maybe closer to 200. 
I went from being the only tuba player to being one of five. And wouldn't you know it, my trajectory as a tuba player went from this to this. Now I was still the section leader, I was still first in the section, I, was, I still made mid-state my, every year and I still worked and did my stuff, but I stopped being pushed and being driven to, to grow and so I kind of reached a plateau. I kind of reached a point where I was just, just kind of there and just kind of existing. I eased back to meet the expectations that were surrounding me, if you will. I put in a lot of time. I put in a lot of effort into music. And this past May, it's been 28 years since I've touched a musical instrument. I spent an untold number of, I do, I do have a number written down here, but I spent an amazing amount of time and, and numbers and all that stuff just to walk away and leave it once it, not became, was, once it was no longer an important part of my life or once no longer somebody was giving me opportunity to improve my skill or once somebody was no longer there pushing me and driving me to be somebody better, to do something greater. And I had some talent, right? But you know what always beats talent? Hard work. Talent is never enough. Hard work and preparation is what get us where we need to be. Actually being given the opportunity to do something and actually doing it will be talent every time. If you show up every day non-stop, you know what you'll get? You'll get, you'll get there. You'll reach where you want to be. Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers, which I'm reading right now, he says that achievement is talent plus preparation. He says in his book, he said, you know, the field is always skewed towards what we see as talent. And what we don't see is what? Hard work. A lot of hard work. Now, if you don't know this, I'm a Red Sox fan. Die-hard Red Sox fan. Boo Yankees. I'm a Boo Mets. I'm a Red Sox fan, right? Big Poppy was one of our best designated hitters ever. And he's, he's very good. He's retired now. But he was such a good player. And you know how he became such a good player? He practiced nonstop. The guy that replaced him, Martinez is his name, he spends so much time studying hitting the ball. All he does is hit the ball. He doesn't play in the field. All he does is hit the ball. He spends so much time studying tape and perfecting his craft that the other players on the team go to him and let him coach them on how to hit the ball better. People like LeBron James, if you're a, or Steph Curry, if you prefer. Michael Jordan, and I think this is right, I don't know much about soccer. Ronaldo, is that a soccer player? Ronaldo, right? These, these people reached the pinnacle of their sports, not on talent alone. Now, did they have talent? Yeah, they probably had some talent, but you know what they used? They used that talent, and they worked very, 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 very hard to get there. You see, we think, the, we think the playing field is skewed towards those with talent, but the playing field is actually skewed toward those people who work hard, who prepare. And what we don't see is the playing field get leveled, gets leveled out after hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. And I want to be careful here because I don't, want to, I don't want to imply that everybody can do everything. Here's something that Josh will never be able to do. I'll never be able to be a jockey. Right? I, I'm just not built for that. I'm about two feet too tall. 
And I weigh a little bit more than I ought to to ride a horse. And I'm scared of horses. So I'm not ever going to be a jockey. But I fully believe that we can do so much more than we ever imagined if we would just work hard at it. If we were at least those shackles that are in our mind cause us to not pursue something because it's hard to do, we would be able to do so much more. Kerry Newhoff in his book, At Your Best, says, you become what you repeatedly do. Any skill, any talent, any behavior, any activity that you want to do, that you want to learn, that you want to improve, takes a lot of practice, takes a lot of preparation, takes a lot of actually just doing it. Not just once. I like playing golf. Right? Actually, I enjoy playing golf with people that I enjoy being with. I go out there and I don't, I'm not a good golfer. Could I be a better golfer? Absolutely. I could spend a lot of time working on my swing and doing all that stuff. But I really don't want to do that, and so I'm not a better golfer, but I enjoy playing. It's about mindset. Daniel Levinton, a neuropsychologist, did a study, and he, he determined how long it takes somebody to master a skill. Not get good at it, but master a skill. To become LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Ronaldo, Big Poppy Martinez... What do you think? How many hours does it take to master a skill? 10,000. 10,000. Now, I estimated that I spent about 3,000 hours between the time I was in fifth grade until the time I graduated in May of 1994 playing a musical instrument, practicing and doing all those things. About 3,000 hours. Had I through that in college, that number would have grown exponentially because you become more focused on what you're, you're doing. And, I, and that number would have grown quickly between the time I would graduated my master's, and I would have been in a much different place if I decided I want to be a tuba player. And I know there's a lot of wealthy tuba players, successful tuba weekly comes out, and we all look to see who's on the cover, right? Uh, I had some talent. On a rudimentary level, I had some talent. I had some phenomenal opportunity. I had a tuba player for a band director that was very good at what he did. And he and I had one-on-one lessons two or three times a week where he taught me and instructed me and brought me along. And my hard work at 3,000 hours brought me to where, to where I was. And I, so I think we should never confuse success, achievement with just talent because it doesn't work that way. Success is about hard work. Coupled with those other things. Here's a couple of outliers as the book talks about. Some 10,000 hour people. Does anybody know who Bill Joy is? Does that name ring a bell for anybody? Bill Joy. Bill Joy is responsible for rewriting the Unix code. And he wrote most of the code that we use on the internet today. Bill went to the University of Michigan when, when the University of Michigan bought their first computer, which is probably about as big as this room right here. He wasn't settled on going into computer work. But he walked by that room and he saw this huge computer and he decided that that's what he would do. He figured out, it's, it's funny, there's a, there's a whole chapter in the book, he figured out how to circumvent time constraints on the computer and he spent 10,000 hours studying writing code and practicing writing code and doing all those things before he ever graduated from the U of M and rewrote the Unix code. There's a little band called the Beatles. We all familiar with the Beatles? 
the Beatles learned their craft playing in Hamburg, Germany. Now, this is some really neat history if you're into history of, of rock and roll. The Beatles played nonstop from dark until dusk in Hamburg, Germany, in this area of town that was kind of seedy, and they played nonstop for about 10,000 hours before they ever touched foot in America and took America by storm. And one more just to kind of throw out there, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, through some extraordinary circumstances, was given access to computers at a very early age, and he spent much of his childhood into high school and then into early college about 10,000 hours learning to write code before he ever dropped out of Harvard. And we, thought, we think, hey, he just had all this talent, so one day he decided to leave Harvard and go, write, go start a company. No, he put in the work. 10,000 hours before he dropped out of Harvard in his sophomore year and started Microsoft. So what's that got to do with where we're at today, right? What's that got to do with the, the Good Samaritan? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've been listening to this story for 46 years. I've heard it in VBSs. I've heard it in sermons. I've heard it in Bible classes, studied it in seminary. There's nothing new under the sun in this story. But I, I do, I want us to hear the story. I want us to speak some truths. And I want us to kind of lead, circle our discussion around to where we began today. Today I'm going to be reading from the message in Luke chapter 10, or Luke chapter 11, verse 25. I didn't click the button. I'm sorry, I didn't click that up there for you. Y'all figured it out though, right? 10,000 hours. All right. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. Just then a religious scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to get to do to get eternal life? And he answered, What is written in God's law? How do you interpret it? And he said, That you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle, intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Good answer, Jesus said. Do it and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, just how would you define my neighbor? And Jesus answered by telling him a story. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. And they took his clothes and they beat him up and went off leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, he went out, his heart went out to him, and he gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill, and I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religious scholar responded, Jesus said, go and do the same. Jesus was an unpopular person. We don't get that because our culture is saturated with our own images of Jesus. But in that day and time, Jesus was an unpopular person because he was really shaking up what everybody thought and what everybody believed. And, and so they were always trying to catch him in a way to get rid of him. They, they really wanted to be done with him. And we, as we see the story goes, we know how the story goes and ends. And, and so they're always trying to chick him, trick him. And Jesus says, you know, and the guy comes and says, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus throws it back on him. And so they go all the way back into the prophets, all the way back into the Shema and, and love the Lord your God all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, with all your strength. And Jesus said, yeah, go do it. But who is my neighbor? Ah, those are the loopholes we're all looking for, isn't it? 
Because in our politically charged country, it's hard to view some people as our neighbor. And it's a whole lot easier when we demonize them and view them as not really even a person. So Jesus says, there's this guy going from Jericho or from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he chooses a bad road, right? Not a good road to be on. So he probably knew better, so at the end of the day, it was probably his fault. The bad was that he got robbed and beaten up, and the ugly was that the religious people who should have stopped and helped him did what? Let me go over here so I don't even have to touch him. So maybe he won't see me. And the good was the Samaritan went above and beyond, and so... Jesus turns it back on him and said, so who was the neighbor? And so Jesus says, go and do. You see, knowledge and understanding are really the problem. The most important part of this whole story is when Jesus says, go and do. You see, once we reach a certain level of understanding about Jesus, once we reach a certain level of knowledge about Jesus and Isaac and Noah have that knowledge about Jesus. An eight and a ten-year-old know enough about Jesus to know that they ought to be doing what? They ought to be doing good. But you know what they also know? They don't want to do it to, them, to each other. So that's where it really starts for us in the home, right? You see, when we know and we think we know, we, gaining more knowledge is of little benefit. The reality is that we need to act. The reality is we actually need to do what we know we need to do. And often... It doesn't make it any easier that we know. And there's some barriers to acting and doing. Sometimes it's a heart problem. I know I should help that person. I know I should do good. But I really just, I just, don't, I just don't want to. Sometimes it's prejudice. This guy took a road from Jerusalem to Jericho that he shouldn't have been on. And he got, he got what he deserved. Sometimes it's just about anger. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to do good. And sometimes it's hurt. I want to do good, but I can't do good right now. Doing good or rather not doing good is almost always a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of knowledge. Dallas Willard says, what our life amounts to, at least for those who reach full age, is largely, if not entirely, a matter of what we become within. And I don't think this is a contrast, but I think it's a good, another good side of it. You don't think your way into a new kind of living, but you live your way into a new kind of thinking. Now, if you want to spend some time moving your spiritual needle forward, spend some time with Dallas Willard. Spend some time with Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen's got a book, I'm sure Willard does too, but Henry Nouwen's got a 365-day devotional that is phenomenal. These aren't opposed to each other. These thoughts aren't opposed to each other. I think they go together. Sometimes change within has to come from without. Sometimes we just have to do stuff until we want to do it. We move ourselves into a new place. And I don't think it's a fake it until you make it thing. 
It's a, what do I want to do? Do I want to do something better in life? Do I want to be something better in life? Then I'm going to have to do something different. Do I want to be, do I want to be more in shape? Then I've got to do something different. Do I want to learn a different skill? Then I've got to do something different. Is it going to be hard? Yeah, it's going to be hard. Is it going to take a long time? It's going to take a long time. Is it going to be worth it? It'll definitely be worth it. If I'd have waited until I was proficient at the tuba to spend 3,000 hours practicing it, I would never have got there. You know, when I first started preaching, 2002, I think, was my first sermon I ever did. I used to spend seven hours on one lesson. And that's not writing. It doesn't include writing. That, that includes me getting in the pulpit and preaching it to an empty auditorium. Well, sometimes my wife was there. She used to hear it about six times before she heard it again on Sunday morning. But I would get up, and actually I got that from the guy that was the preacher there at the time. He said, when I first started, he said, I'd look at myself in the mirror, and I, and I didn't want to look at myself in the mirror. So I got up in front of the I had access to the auditorium. I'd get up in front of the auditorium. And even, even until my last sermon that I preached on a regular basis at Central Pike in 2014, I got up in the pulpit every Sunday morning before anybody else got in the building, and I preached that sermon. I would estimate that I spent somewhere around five to 7,000 hours working on my craft. Because that was important to me. And I wanted to do it well. And so I worked at it. And I believe if we want to do something like, some, if we want to do something new in our life, if we want to just do good, if we want to do, if we want to do, I believe that God will give us those opportunities. I fully believe God will give us those opportunities. I believe God will open those doors and we will have opportunities to do good things and to perfect the gifts that God has given us. But it's a matter of choosing to do that. It's a matter of choosing to walk that road. Some parting shots before I leave you this morning. There are two places that you can go and do good immediately. And I believe are important. Number one, I did not hit the right button. Today, you can, do, you can do good to and for yourself. Historically, we as a church, we as a spiritual people have done a really bad job of teaching and modeling good self-care. Now, who grew up hearing a song, uh, the joy song? Not, I've got the joy, joy, joy. But J is for, y'all know the song, J is for Jesus, O is for, and Y is for you, right? But what we do is go, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and so it never, and you know what, we, we look at that as some type of tiered plane where Jesus gets everything, and then whatever's left over, we give to others, and then if there's even a crumb left over for ourselves, we'll take it for ourselves, but what do we, we're really, we feel bad about taking stuff for ourselves, don't we? We feel bad about taking care of ourselves. I believe that's circular. I don't think we can serve Jesus and be about Jesus or serve others and be about others if we're not taking care of ourselves. And I think if something in that, I think if that part of that circle breaks down, that circle does, is no longer a circle, it's a flat tire and it doesn't roll. Right? It stops. If we don't take care of ourselves, there is zero chance 
zero chance that we can become anything God has created us to be and that we can become what the world needs us to be. My dad, and I know Mr. my dad's been a preacher my entire life. He was preaching, he's been preaching probably 50 years at this point. I've watched him work non-stop. I mean non-stop, and it still not be good enough for the churches that he served. Historically, churches have treated their leaders and their staff as servants and not as fellow workers. I think some of that stems from just basic lack of understanding about self-care in our own lives. I think the second place that you can do today is you can do good at home. One of the first places it suffers whenever the little light on here, whenever the do good for yourself doesn't happen is the doing good at home. And oftentimes we don't realize just how deprived we have made our family feel until something catastrophic happens. Don't do that. Do good to and love those that God has brought together in your life to be your tribe. The book I, Outliers, I just got done reading Kerry Newhoff's book on... Um, at your best. And one of the things there he says is you have the capacity to, to intimately or realistically know about five people. And you know what that is? That's your family. That's not your best friend from high school or your buddy from over here. That's your husband or your wife and your kids and those people. That you are built, that's how God builds us to have that group of people. And then there's, there's, there's concentric circles that work out from that. But those people that God brings to be your tribe, your husband, your wife, your kids, those people right around you in your life, those people are there for a reason and take care of them and do good to them and love them. Don't make excuses. When I was a preacher, I followed my dad, and I love my dad, but my dad put way too much effort into the church and, not, and he didn't neglect us as a family, but he gave all of his everything to church. And I appreciate that, but I look back on that and I followed in some of that in my life and I'm telling you, that's not my life anymore. Because I know what's important in my life. And she's sitting right there. And that, my wife and those two boys, the, the crazy one that was up here and the crazy one you see running around, those are the ones that God has given me to be my tribe and my mother-in-law, and my parents. That's my tribe. And those are the ones that if nothing else, I can be good to myself and I can be good to those people. Right? That ought to take little effort. And imagine if we perfected those two things. Imagine if we spent as much time thinking about those things as we do about other things Knowledge is never the problem. We know what we need to do. Sometimes it's just doing it. And Jesus says, go, go and do. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful for today. 
thankful for an opportunity to stand up, and I pray that I've been a vessel for you today to speak some words for you. Father, uh, give us opportunity to do good and courage to do it. Give us opportunity to do good and courage to do it. We love you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be the next two weeks, and we're going to speak through some other, other parables, and we're going to talk next week about prayer. And guess what I'm, going to, what I'm going to tell you? What do you need to be doing? Praying. I'm not breaking any ground here, right? And then next week, we're going to talk about do something. Just do something. Brian's going to come, and he's going to lead us to the table. I'm thankful for this church. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to invite Brian to come. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.